Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. California's farmers have concerns galore this week. Trade issues, threatened tariffs with several foreign countries, especially China, pose a risk to the state's agricultural exports. Farmers need workers, and the prospects for getting easier access to skilled foreign agricultural labor are dim due to the immigration issues currently facing the U.S. Well, I guess if you're looking to make it a bingo blackout of farm problems this week, there's the reemergence of two pests. West Nile virus for horses and a parasitic plant has reappeared. It's called broom rape and it's threatening crops in Yolo County and the Delta. But there is some good news. Central Valley Project Ag customers south of the Delta are getting more water and hawks are killing rodents that are destroying levees. So there's that. Let's delve into it on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. That tariff game of chicken with China is expanding. And yes, it does include chicken. Widening trade disputes between the U.S. and its trading partners could affect more California crops. China expanded the number of agricultural products that could face new tariffs. Among the California agricultural goods that may be facing more tariff restrictions to China include pork products, chicken products, grated cheeses, strawberries, fresh potatoes, raisins, garlic, citrus, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, carrots, peas, celery, lentils, beans, sweet potatoes, and the big three nut crops, almonds, pistachios, and walnuts. U.S. trade relations with China continue to be a roller coaster of ups and downs, especially when it comes to agricultural trade. Gary Crawford of the USDA focuses in on the past year's wild and sometimes unpredictable events. Product dumping, subsidized goods, currency... President Trump's talk about trade abuses by other nations, particularly China, began very early in his administration. We can no longer tolerate these trade abuses. And the latest development on China came just this past week. We're putting tariffs on $50 billion worth of technology and other things because we have to, because we've been treated very unfairly. And China has announced retaliatory tariffs on U.S. goods. We'll take a look at the China trade issue and how it has developed over this past year on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. It was just about a year ago when relations with China seemed to have hit a very good high point. After almost 14 years of banning U.S. beef, China agreed to allow U.S. beef back into its country, leading a very happy Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue to say, This is a huge deal, and we're happy to have that. But the glow from that breakthrough did not last very long. March 2018, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer announces a new report outlining and verifying China's various trade abuses. The president has analyzed it. So we're going to get it taken care of. And he has concluded that we should put in place tariffs on appropriate products. And the next day, those tariffs are announced. At the same time, I'm on the phone with Ohio State University ag analyst Barry Ward, who told me that in the agricultural sector... We're all kind of worried now what might be retaliation. Agriculture typically gets targeted. And indeed, then the next day, March 23rd, China coming out with a list of U.S. farm and food products that will be targeted for tariffs, including pork, soybeans, many other products, prompting American Farm Bureau President Zippy Duval and Agriculture Department Trade Undersecretary Ted McKinney to paraphrase this classic movie line from Betty Davis. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Better put your seatbelt on, pull it up tight. And in the case of China, I'm suggesting shoulder straps with extra buckles. At about that time, the phrase trade war begins to pop up. However, U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross keeps telling reporters, We will end up negotiating these things rather than fighting over them, in my view. 
But shots are being fired. China announcing earlier an anti-dumping investigation against U.S. sorghum, essentially closing what had been a very good market. Sorghum prices to farmers plummet. China also imposes an immediate 25% tariff on U.S. pork. And makes us uncompetitive. Purdue University ag economist Chris Hurt says U.S. hog producers could end up seeing a drop in prices for their hogs if the tariffs are imposed. A loss to the industry of millions of dollars, but of course... The hope is for agriculture that uh, we can resolve these issues at the negotiation table. The Chinese, meanwhile, also announced an intention to put a 25% tariff on U.S. soybeans. Then, April 6th, amidst worry about the effects on U.S. farmers of the undeclared trade war with China, President Trump asked Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue to come up with some ways that U.S. farmers caught up in the crossfire of this dispute might be compensated for some of their losses. Perdue telling reporters... He's told me, Sonny, you tell our farmers we're not going to let them be casualties in this trade dispute. And Perdue also says... I think President Trump has gotten China's attention. He expects some changes. And indeed, a few days later, April 24th, the president tells reporters... We're having uh, Secretary Mnuchin, Bob Lighthizer, heading over to China at the request of China. And we're having very substantive discussions. May 5th, as the talks in China begin, Agriculture Secretary Perdue tells reporters he's got high hopes for the talks. Most of the tariffs have not been put into place as of yet, but uh, hopefully we can resolve this. The talks end in China, resume in Washington. And on May 21st, things seem to be progressing with U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin telling reporters... We're putting the trade war on on hold. With China tentatively agreeing to buy more U.S. products, including farm products. But Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross cautions... This is not a definitive agreement. So he and others begin preparations to travel back to Beijing for talks there. Meanwhile, more caution. I do not want people to get overly excited. Under Secretary of Agriculture for trade, Ted McKinney from China telling expectant farmers. Sometimes the excitement generates benefits and sometimes it does not. Excitement mounts, though. There are reports from the talks. China has agreed to purchase more U.S. food and ag products. Details, though, are sketchy. And June 3rd, the talks end without definitive agreements. Then the bombshell last week. We're putting tariffs on $50 billion worth of technology and other things. China has announced its list of U.S. products targeted for tariffs, so it appears the trade war that Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said only 19 days before was on hold, is now on unhold. Although we still have a few days before many of the tariffs would take effect. So what's next in this roller coaster trade scene? Who knows? But as Betty Davis said in the classic movie All About Eve, fasten your seatbelts. That's right. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. As the immigration bill tug-of-war continues in Washington, here in California, farmers still need workers. And the California Farm Bureau Federation said the recent failure of an immigration measure in the U.S. House of Representatives will ultimately set the stage for Congress to resolve long-standing inadequacies in agricultural immigration programs that have contributed to chronic employee shortages on farms and ranches. Farm Bureau President Jamie Johansson says the California Farm Bureau will advocate for an agricultural visa program that would accommodate people who want to enter the United States legally to do farm work and enlarge enough numbers to ease the shortages that farmers are experiencing. The new program must also recognize current highly skilled immigrant employees and help them gain proper documentation. Congressional leaders may consider new legislation on that very issue, agricultural visas, later this summer. 
In the House of Representatives Thursday, lawmakers defeating a conservative immigration bill which had provisions to help farm operators more easily find workers. Lawmakers postponed a vote on a compromise bill, a bill that did not have any farm worker provisions. On that score, Washington State Representative Dan Newhouse said there's still a chance for getting a new farm worker system. Chairman Goodlad of the House Judiciary Committee has been a steadfast advocate for reforming this system over the years, and I'm heartened by the commitment the Speaker, as well as the Majority Leader, have given to me and others for a standalone vote on agricultural workforce legislation. He said that commitment is to have a vote before the August recess. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Summer's here, mosquitoes are getting more prevalent, and California's horse owners are advised to consult their veterinarian to ensure their horse's vaccination status is current for maximum protection against West Nile virus. The disease was confirmed in 2017 in 21 California horses, eight of which died or were euthanized. According to the California West Nile virus website, there were 553 human cases of the disease in the state last year. Signs of West Nile virus in horses include stumbling, staggering, wobbling, weakness, muscle twitching, and inability to stand. Horses contract the disease from carrier mosquitoes, but they are not contagious to other horses or people. The best way to minimize the threat of West Nile virus in horses is to control mosquito populations and prevent exposure to them. Some steps to take. Reduce or eliminate sources of stagnant or standing water that can serve as a breeding ground for mosquitoes. That includes old tires, buckets, wading pools, and other containers. Put horses in stalls during peak mosquito periods, especially dawn and dusk. Use equine-approved mosquito repellents or protective horse gear such as fly sheets, masks, and leg wraps. Also, place fans inside barns and stalls to maintain air movement. Mosquitoes don't fly very well in the wind. CDFA is working with the California Department of Public Health to detect and respond to the disease in California. Horses provide an additional sentinel for detection of West Nile virus. Here's this week's California Crop Report. Wheat harvest is ongoing in Sutter County. The safflowers are in bloom. In Tulare County, fields were being prepped for corn and summer beans. Alfalfa and cotton are being irrigated. Barley, oats, and wheat were cut or harvested for grain. Grapes are developing well. Stone fruit orchards are being irrigated and fertilized. Some orchard floors were lined with reflective plastic to aid in fruit color. Summer pruning of stone fruit is ongoing. Peaches, nectarines, and apricots are being harvested. The cherry harvest is wrapping up for the season. Valencia orange harvest is ongoing. Some citrus trees were being planted. Older trees are being trimmed and skirted. Almonds, pistachios, and walnuts are being irrigated. Pesticides and fungicides are applied to some almond groves, and weed control continues. Lettuce continues to be harvested in Monterey County. Sweet corn and melons are growing well in San Joaquin County. Cucumbers, peppers, and squash are being harvested in Tulare County as summer vegetables were being planted. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture was primarily rated to be in fair condition. Sheep are grazing on retired cropland. Bees are active in sunflower fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. 
Some good news for Central Valley Project customers south of the Delta. The Bureau of Reclamation has issued updated allocations for them for the 2018 contract year. The allocation for south of Delta agricultural water service contractors has increased from 45% to 50%. For municipal and industrial contractors, south of Delta remains at the greater of 75% of their historic use or for public health and safety needs. The Bureau of Reclamation is still planning to limit the overall amount of water in San Luis Reservoir. That's scheduled at the end of the contract year into the 2019 contract year. It's a real honor to have you on our own homestead. We're delighted to be here, and we thank you for the hospitality. Canada's Agriculture Minister Lawrence McCauley and U.S. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue on the McCauley Farm on Prince Edward Island the other day. Both leaders are former dairy farmers, and of course, Canada's dairy supply management system is one of the bones of contention between the two countries as they continue to try to hammer out a new NAFTA agreement. Perdue telling reporters... The U.S.'s uh, ambition is not to dictate to Canada to do away with its supply management system. We do think that we have a request that the supply be managed so that we do not overproduce and depress world milk solid prices in that way. But Macaulay's response... We have a supply management system that has been good for the country, uh, good for the farmers. I don't uh, see any big changes in that area at all. Uh-oh, now, uh, later during his visit to Canada, Secretary Purdue got on the phone with U.S. reporters and called the dairy issue with Canada, one of those intractable issues, and Purdue went on into more detail about it. If they want their consumers to pay two or three times the price that we pay in in the United States for fluid milk and other products, then that's their nation's business. But whenever it spills across the border, high domestic prices and low undercutting prices on an export basis, that's when it becomes a problem for our producers and our business if they want to maintain a supply management issue in their dairy and their strong political thoughts about that up here, that is their business. But then manage the supply to control that supply so it's not overproduced and spilling over into the export market. This issue has helped stall progress in the current North American free trade agreement negotiations between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. And on that score, for NAFTA, Purdue told reporters, We will continue to discuss NAFTA on into the summer and hopefully uh, have some resolution there. We feel uh, probably more optimistic in a Mexican agreement sooner than Canada, but hopefully we can get an agreement with Mexico and then with Canada uh, very soon this summer. We know that we're up against the Mexican elections here at the uh, beginning of next month. And U.S. midterm elections in November, but Purdue said the U.S. elections really are not playing a part in trying to speed up the NAFTA negotiating process. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. USDA Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs Ted McKinney was upbeat about his trade mission to Japan even before it was done. Overall, it's been a very successful trip so far. And speaking on the phone from Tokyo, he had good reason. We've been setting some records of late, and here I think we have another one. This is certainly the largest in numbers of attendees in the history of USDA and the Foreign Ag Service. He says the 42 agribusiness representatives in the U.S. delegation represent a wide diversity of ag products. Wine, craft beers, spirits, juices, confection, cookies, cheesecakes, honey, coffee, nut crops for the Midwest folks, soy, corn, rice, beef, lamb, etc., fruits, and then we have some who aggregate purchases from the U.S. and deliver those 
more of the processed goods. And then we can't forget ethanol has a smaller but important contingent, very focused. We have seafood, animal vet products, rice, and livestock genetics. He adds that the general mood was very optimistic following speed dating type sessions in Tokyo. We can report there's already more than 375 business-to-business meetings. Some of the meetings resulted in deals, while others had leads to follow up. More of the same followed in sessions in Osaka, where the group toured Kobe Port, visited major Japanese bread and beer makers, as well as toured the market for Japan's famous Kobe beef. The mission also included officials from 15 state governments. Several in the Midwest, but notably all of the western states had planned to be here and are here in total. So think of the Rocky Mountains West and all of their states are represented. Which meant that in the Japanese capital, there also was a government component. We had a very productive meeting with the Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries. That's MAF, M-A-F-F, and we met with the Minister of Ag. We also met with the Ministry of Health, Labor, and Welfare. They're very important because they're part of the regulatory system that approves a lot of products. These were follow-up meetings to Undersecretary McKinney's last visit to Japan in March. The Ag Trade Mission went from June 11th to June 15th. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. A new report out says 1.4 million Californians lack access to broadband internet at any speed. Part of the problems? Infrastructure. Robert Gore is the co-founder and co-chair of the California Ag Tech Roundtable Strategic Initiative, a group attempting to get high-speed internet to rural areas of California. And he talks about some of the innovations made by a Danish company that they did in Africa that could work in the Central Valley. We had a demonstration at UC Ag and Natural Resources, the Davis facility, about a month ago. It was a company, a Danish company of all things called Blue Sky, um, that had just brought connectivity to a village in Africa, and there has been advancement in connectivity as well. They have portable towers uh, that are kind of like mini towers, and you can tilt them up from the bed of a pickup, and they're less than $5,000, and the cost per household to connect them is, also, is less than $5. So we're, we're busy evaluating how to bring this to rural California at a reasonable cost. And it's not just for ag. It also delivers remote health care, uh, distance learning, or again, career advancement, and then also public safety. If you talk to any farmer who's got a high-priced piece of equipment out in the middle of a field, they have no way of knowing if it starts to move in the middle of the night. And that's another service of high-speed connectivity. They can wire all their equipment. Farmers and ranchers depend on Internet access for various tasks every day, including global positioning system guidance for farm equipment, vital data collection, as well as transmission of data like soil conditions, temperature, wind speed, and they make real-time decisions regarding factors like seed population and fertilizer rates. That data needs to be collected and accessed quickly for successful production in a global agricultural economy. While issues of elder abuse and exploitation are concerns across America, the Deputy Agriculture Secretary says rural senior citizens face greater vulnerability. On average, rural Americans are older than those that live in urban areas. They usually have less housing options. They are more reliant 
dependent on others to provide transportation. There's not as wide a range of services available to them when they're in rural areas. So each of those really increases the vulnerability of rural Americans, more vulnerable to abuse and to scams as well. Which Deputy Secretary Steven Sensky says is why USDA and the Justice Department are forming a working group to focus on addressing these issues, culminating in a strategic plan for presentation at a DOJ Rural Elder Justice Summit this November. What really is amping up, if you will, the kinds of cooperation and resources that are available. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture at Washington, D.C. If there is one enemy of levees throughout California, it's rodents. They dig into dirt levees like you can't believe. They can cause damage that can threaten lives and crops. As many dam and safety inspectors have found, rodents can really do a lot of damage to levees. But a lot of places are trying to get away from rodenticides. There is an option. It's raptors. We've talked about barn owls on this program before, but did you realize that there are other raptors out there that do a great job of feeding on the rodents that might be destroying your levees that are protecting your livelihood? We're talking with Jane Braxton Little. Jane is a writer, a freelance writer who does a lot of environmental writing for many publications. This particular one was in The Revelator, and it was about some experiments done down in Ventura County to determine the effectiveness of raptors versus rodents on levees. Jane, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Let's uh, delve into what was going on down there in Ventura County. Well, they had a problem. They have something like uh, 40 miles of levees and the levees were being uh, used as homes for pocket gophers and California ground squirrels. The burrows that these rodents can make can be as long as as, uh, 35 feet, so you can imagine the damage that they would do. There was a threat of subsidence uh, and levees completely collapsing. So for years they've been using bait poison, uh, mostly uh, anticoagulant rodenticides, and uh, that was pretty effective. But in uh, 2005, Ventura County was concerned about, um, a- asked all of its county departments to minimize the use of, of poisons, uh, in any of their, any of their projects. What brought that on was public outrage over the, uh, thickness and death of bobcats, coyotes, household pets, and most notably P22 which is the mountain lion that was famous for lurking around the Hollywood sign um, in uh, L.A. County. That uh, mountain lion actually was uh, poisoned by anti-rodenticides, anticoagulant rodenticides, but recovered. So folks in Ventura County were saying enough of this, and the county enacted uh, not a complete ban, but a an ordinance that, required all the counties to minimize their use of of pesticides and uh, rodenticides. So that put the Water Protection District in a tough spot. They had uh, to figure out a way to control the rodents, uh, but minimize minimize the pesticide use. And they came up with this pilot project using raptors. It had been done, raptors, uh, raptors had been used in neighboring Santa Barbara County to uh, control uh, rodents in their levees, but nobody had conducted a scientific experiment. 
So that's what really interested me. In Ventura County, this was an empirical study using a scientific control site, and uh, then the, they set up perches and owl boxes to as a variable on a stretch of levee, and uh, then they monitored it for something like 18 months. And these perches were rather simple. They were about 20 feet high and, and fairly inexpensive. Quite inexpensive, and uh, the Boy Scouts helped them build them and helped them put them up. So there was an interesting community component to the whole thing, but quite inexpensive. And, of course, the birds were free. Pocket gophers and ground squirrels were the main culprits. So what were the results of the study? You have a, a, a stretch of levee that was being protected by raptors and another, I guess, where they were using still were using rodenticides. Right. That was the control. So after uh, the end of the 17-month, 18-month uh, study, they found out that the raptors were 50% more effective in controlling rodents than the bait poisons. And they saved them $7,400 per levy mile. So they were much, much more cost effective. I think they figured out that over 30 years, the um, raptors could save a potential over $200,000 to the county over a 30-year period. So that's significant. Have they acted upon that? Have they gone out and built more perches and added more barn owl houses? Yes, they went from uh, 17 perches, I believe, to 127 perches. They now have 16 owl boxes. They are have these on 10 miles of levees and a third of their 55 dams. So they've expanded the program and believe they can ex- expand it even further as, as, um, as time goes by. And I guess it was uh, some species of owls that also contributed to the demise of the rodents there, uh, the burrowing owls, of all things. They had, they had found burrowing owls, some barn owls, and then five or six different raptors were, were um, attracted and in use. What were the raptors that were attracted? So they found um, red-tailed hawks, white-tailed kites, barn owls, uh, great horned owls, northern harriers, burrowing owls, Cooper's hawks. I think that's it. This experiment then, I guess, was repeated in northern California. There is a project in um, Napa County, Napa-Sonoma area, where they are they put GPS collars on owls just to, to see where they were um, foraging. And they, they found that they were foraging one-third of their time in, um, in the vineyards. So that is encouraging some vintners to put up owl boxes, and uh, mostly it's owls there. They put cameras in owl boxes, and they documented that a pair of owls with four chicks can eat up to a 1,000 rodents in a breeding cycle. So that's pretty significant. And that study is going to go on to see if they can't expand um, their understanding of what owls and raptor, other raptors are doing in vineyards. I, I think also we should remember that um, anticoagulant rodenticides are very much available in California, even though household over-the-counter sales were banned in 2014. And these poisons are really out there. 75% of the wildlife that's been tested tests positive for ARs, 
and they're affecting something like 37 different species in California. We could extend the conversation from sort of uh, agricultural areas like Ventura County. When you get to the backcountry um, in both the Sierra and northwestern California, the poisons that are mostly used on uh, cannabis grows, illegal pot farms, are affecting northern spotted owls. They're affecting fishers, both of which are threatened. And they're affecting bears and coyotes and on and on. So uh, California, and not just California, but California specifically, has a real big problem with these anticoagulant rodenticides. The battle against rodents who are destroying levees continues, and it looks like raptors, barn owls, may be part of the solution. You can read all about it. Jane Braxton Little wrote about raptors to the rescue in therevelator.org. Jane Braxton Little, good to talk with you. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. Thanks so much for having me on your show, Fred. The folks who track U.S. orange production have not had to do a lot of work this month, adding or subtracting from the forecasts they made last month. In fact, no changes to report in what has been a dire season for growers in Florida. Final all-orange production this season in Florida, just under 45 million boxes. USDA state statistician in Florida, Mark Hudson, reviewed for us what's happened over the last two years. Compared to last year, all oranges were down 35 percent, and uh, two years ago were down to 45 percent for our non Valencias were down 43% from last year and is down 48% from two years ago. And Valencias are down 27% and down 43% from two years ago. Now, before the season started, Florida growers thought they might see a little increase, even with citrus greening to contend with, but Hurricane Irma shattering those dreams. But they're hoping for a rebound for next season. Uh, so far, preliminary reports to the fruit set, they're pretty optimistic from what I hear. We won't get another official check on things there until October. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. There's a parasitic plant that's been found in some parts of Yolo County and the Delta. It's called broom rape. Growers of all annual crops should be on the lookout and get more information if they come across any of it in their fields. Well, let's get some information right now. We're talking to Gene Meow. He's a longtime cooperative extension farm advisor based in Woodland. He's been a farm advisor since 1980. And Gene, this parasitic plant, I mean, when people think of parasitic plants, we think of daughter, but this is something different, isn't it? It is, and uh, but similar to similar to daughter as a parasitic plant, uh, the concern is uh, reduction in crop yield, and we're also concerned uh, in the case of uh, the broom rape that you know, it's a prolific uh, seed producer and all those bad things. Long live seed that uh, just survives in the soil for thirty years or more. And it's such a small seed. They're not very conspicuous, and so you and you might uh, drag it along with equipment, maybe even foot traffic. So that's the you know, that's the concern of spreading it uh, uh, across a non-infested field. Yeah, this form of broom rape does most of its work underground, which makes it uh, very insidious. Unlike daughter that will wrap around the branches and be very visible, this plant, the broom rape, uh, is wrapping around the roots of the plant. So all a grower is going to see might be a decline in the quality of their plants and maybe the flower head of the broom rape itself. Uh, growing underground for a fair part of its life, but uh, as an attachment to roots. Uh, but then it will send up uh, a shoot above ground 
where it's producing all these seeds and it's uh, before it's fully grown above ground, it, it's starting to uh, produce very viable seeds. So uh, if it wasn't such uh, a pest of tomatoes and other crops that I say that uh, most people would look at it and say uh, it's uh, very exotic, almost a, I don't know, a tropical flower. I mean, it is uh, an attractive bloom, but uh, one that uh, no tomato grower uh, wants to see in, in their field. Describe what the above ground portion looks like. What does the flower look like? Well, the flower it looks very delicate. So, kind of overall, what would uh, would these stalks look like? It would uh, have the appearance of uh, what one might imagine uh, white uh, asparagus. You know, be very. Uh, it doesn't have chlorophyll, so it has that sort of whiteness uh, or off whiteness look to it. Looks a little succulent, very fresh looking. Uh, not not so much fragile. The flowers. Uh, you know, our shades of uh, purplish, color, but very, very more uh, delicate. That whole above-ground part looks very uh, exotic. So would someone uh, uh, easily see these? I'd say they'd be, look so foreign that um, uh, they would notice it as a plant, thank goodness, that they do not see very frequently at all. In my, in my lifetime, I had I, I had only seen broom rape in the Delta uh, while I was uh, a teenager. And um, I, I knew the severity of it. And, and uh, I say this uh, fumigation program had been uh, very, very much in place and, uh, uh, and a strong effort by the industry to try to uh, uh, eradicate it. It is a parasitic plant, which means it's acquiring the nutrients and water it needs from the host plant. Besides tomatoes, what are some of the other crops at risk in our area from broom rape? A wide uh, uh, host range. Uh, sunflowers are, are one of the crops. Uh, there uh, apparently the Israelis tell us that uh, even some of the trees, like olives, are, are susceptible. Uh, we know that... Uh, Maybe controversial, but uh, we know that uh, a cannabis uh, is susceptible to uh, to this uh, broom rape. A dry bean. I think I'm repeating myself now. Dry bean. I think for us in the in our especially in our Sacramento Valley, but I'd say in the Central Valley overall, that we know that there are so many new plantings of uh, orchard type crops: almonds, walnuts, pistachios. But especially almonds, and are concerned that uh, there's less available uh, annual uh, rotational crops for uh, land for for tomato production. So we need to be very protective of the ground that we currently have, and uh, and not spread uh, these uh, pests around. And and I think you know, for me, Fred, that. Uh, when we talk about the control programs, I'm reminded of uh, some ITM, Integrated Pest Management Strategies, and, and one is, uh, you know, identification of the pests, uh, but, uh, but also thinking about uh, uh, control and early control. 
from the farmer standpoint, then if they see the broom rape weed, uh, probably their first step should be to call the ag commissioner or the cooperative extension office. Yes, it is. Uh, but there's, you know, there's some. Uh, we we understand that there's reluctance uh, in in doing that. Uh, that. You know, we're working on trying to get uh, crop insurance uh, to, to help with uh, crop losses. The problem uh, for the industry uh, in general, while we're talking about this uh, early control, that for an individual grower, their their consequences that uh, no no canner will uh, we're not aware of a canner that will accept uh, uh, a field that's infested with broom rape uh, for fear of of then within a cannery uh, facilities that it uh, gets into their wash water, gets uh, re-dumped and redistributed in, in many of their uh, truckload containers and then goes out uh, into uh, a wide network uh, within their uh, own grower base and has a potential of, uh, of being spread. So. Uh, the consequence uh, currently is that uh, a grower is put on uh, more or less a quarantine-like hold on their field, a hold order, so they're not not allowed to uh, uh, process to harvest their crop. Uh, uh, further restrictions uh, until a grower can demonstrate that uh, the pest is eradicated. Well, we hope that there aren't very many fields involved so it's uh we, we as I say we hope there aren't very many fields involved and if there are then uh you know then we we have some uh, uh greater financial burden as an industry and certainly as an individual grower the uh and the uh costly and uh and problematic for their for their own operation does eradication involve fumigation or uh, solar solarization? The fumigation, uh, you know, is a is a problem when you think about it globally. Until we can uh, identify better uh, steps to eradicate, uh, we're going to be challenged. As far as you know, there are no biological controls for broom rape. That's a difficult one uh, when we talk about control programs. We talk about management, but eradication is, uh, you know, is, uh, is a pretty tall order. We hope we're able to achieve it with uh, some of these uh, fumigations, but again, uh, tall order. It also raises uh, the point that uh, growers are going to have to be uh, more careful and more judicious about supplying clean nursery stock. Yes, and, and, and you know, when we uh, expand on that and say that... Um, well, we hope it's not getting into our nursery stock for sure, but, uh, you know, expanding on uh, sort of vigilance, um, you know, may not just be, well, it certainly isn't just restricted to uh, broom rape as a pest, but, you know, these preventive controls of trying to uh, clean up equipment, uh, try to not uh, move plant uh, material or soil, not knowing what infestation may be in plant tissue or in soil, but trying to you know, reduce some of this movement and do some cleanup uh, is important. But it's there's an expense associated with uh, cleaning, and, and those of us who uh, 
uh, know or can imagine what a tomato harvester looks like uh, after harvesting a, a field of tomatoes and getting ready to move into uh, the next field in the uh, harvest schedule. That um, not easy to clean that machine and not easy to find uh, a, a seed that might be well hidden uh, out of view and tucked into some some really obscure place on that uh, uh, on that harvester. Quite a challenge, but even with that challenge, uh, saying that uh, trying to reduce the problem seems to me to be uh, be a, a worthwhile effort. We've been talking about broom rape. It's a parasitic plant that's been found in some parts of Yolo County and the Delta, and growers of all annual crops should be on the lookout for it and contact their local ag commissioner if they come across any in their fields. Broom rape has the potential to damage many economically important crops in California, including bell pepper, cabbage, carrot, celery, eggplant, legumes, melons, potatoes, sunflower, and Jean Miao specialty tomatoes, including the local processing tomato crop. Jean Miao, farm advisor based in Woodland, thanks for spending a few minutes with us talking about broom rape. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for uh, uh, giving us uh, additional coverage. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.